You're listening to WLXU 93.9 LPFM Lexington, Lexington Community Radio. And this is Birth Aloud with Kristen Piscucci. I'm an advocate for women's rights in childbirth, founder of Birth Monopoly, co-creator of the Exposing the Silence Project, a national photography project on birth trauma, and former vice president of Improving Birth, the nation's largest consumer-based maternity care advocacy organization. You can learn more about my work at birthmonopoly.com. Today, we have a very special and jam-packed episode featuring the story of a woman named Jay from the state of Indiana. It's about her 2016 birth and what happened when she complained to the hospital that she'd been traumatized by the actions of one of their doctors. During what was intended to be a routine vaginal exam to assess her dilation, Jay was given an aggressive and painful procedure called membrane sweeping or membrane stripping, where the doctor pushes her fingers further up into the cervix and attempts to manually separate the amniotic sac from its attachment inside the uterus. This is a procedure meant to stimulate labor. Jay complained to the hospital afterwards that this procedure was done without her permission. The hospital reviewed her complaint with a group of their physicians in private, and then they sent her a three-sentence letter saying that their peer review had found her care to be, quote, deemed appropriate, end quote. So Jay insisted on a meeting, and she recorded that meeting. I want you to listen carefully to what she is told, because this is a significant statement on the rights of pregnant people. What you're hearing here today is a true picture of how many hospitals view pregnant women in their rights and how women are responded to when they manage to stand up for themselves. So today we have Jay, who is, as you will hear, a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. We have the recording of her meeting with the hospital's patient advocate and a staff member from labor and delivery. And we've got a lawyer and a doctor listening in on the recording to give their perspectives on what the hospital representatives told Jay in that meeting. Now let's go to Jay. Jay, thank you for being on the show. Well, I'm happy to be here. So we're going to play the recording of the meeting that you had in the next, um, a little later in the show. But can you give everybody some background on what led up to that meeting? Yeah, um, so what happens at this hospital is when you come in, um, you're evaluated in a very, very small room right inside the labor and delivery unit, which they call a triage room. And they have a fetal monitor in there and a very uncomfortable chair, table. I was prepared to see somebody I was unfamiliar with. Um, but I wasn't really prepared for the way that I was going to be treated by them. Yeah. So can you walk me through what happened just, just with as much as you feel comfortable talking about? Sure. Um, I went in and, um, first a a male nurse came in and asked, you know, the big laundry list of questions, um, about my general health and things. And then uh, waited longer and said the hospitalist was going to come in and, you know, see how far along I was and what was going on. So waited for her to come in. She asked me all of the exact same questions and wrote them down on a sheet of paper. And then she said, you know, we're going to proceed and do the check and um, 
So wait, so just just to be clear, what was the purpose of the visit and the check? The to see if I was in active labor, and I um you know assumed the position, and uh, she said, oh you like a stretchy five or six, and then I felt a um large amount of uncomfortable pain, and I knew what had happened because my obstetrician had stripped my membranes for me before, and I was familiar with the pain, and. After she removed her hand, I asked, I asked her, well, what just happened? And she said, oh, that membrane strip should send you into active labor. And I was absolutely shocked that she would do something like that. And then she told me, well, you can, you're not in active labor. You can stay or go home. And at that point, I just, I just got up and walked out and left. And so what was your mental or emotional state like at that point? I was very mad. Yeah. I was extremely frustrated when I walked out of that room. So you had the baby. Healthy, happy, and wonderful. Okay. And then at what point did you decide to say something about what had happened to the hospital? It was a few weeks afterwards. I had, um, you know, decompressed. I was sitting there reflecting on everything and that was the one part of the birth that just was kind of you know, eating at the back of my mind. Like everything else about it was picture perfect, and, you know, in any way that I could have imagined it, except this one doctor, you know, I felt violated and I didn't feel, I feel like, you know, the experience was not as positive as it could have been because I wasn't treated with basic human respect. And so I thought that maybe we could actually make some positive impact by addressing this. And we can tell by the recording exactly how much headway was actually made in that department. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell me why this bothered you so much? I mean, it's obvious to me, but for people listening who maybe don't understand, can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Uh, I had, uh, I had had one um, bad previous experience when I gave birth to my first daughter and I had, you know, I felt like I was prepared for hospital birth and that I'd be able to achieve my desired birth outcomes in the best way possible and wound up hitting massive roadblocks at every way and was threatened with a cesarean uh, if I didn't accept medications and things like that. And so I was already very nervous of hospital birth to begin with and felt very guarded on top of that, I'm also a uh, sexual assault survivor, so I'm also very guarded in my body in those regards and like to know what's going on, especially when other people are handling me. And it was not knowing that provider and you know, knowing that I was already going to have to submit to this to be able to be analyzed and whether or not they were going to admit me. But then having them do something like that when I was already vulnerable and uncomfortable, that's what it just sent it off the edge for me. It just was just felt completely egregious and disrespectful. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go to the recording and Jay, thank you. And we will check back in with you at the end of the show after we hear from two other people who are listening in on the recording to provide their own perspectives on what we've heard. First will be Farah Diaz-Tello, 
a human rights and birth lawyer in New York who is dedicated to the rights of pregnant and birthing people. Farah was formerly with National Advocates for Pregnant Women and has been involved in several high-profile lawsuits around forced and non-consented procedures in childbirth. She's one of my favorite birth advocates. Her opinions here are just her opinions and not legal advice. Listeners should be aware that specific laws and terminology vary from state to state, so anyone seeking legal advice should contact someone in their own jurisdiction. Now here is the recording with Jay, the hospital's patient advocate, and a representative from the Labor and Delivery Department. This recording has been edited minimally for time and to beep out names or identifying information. So would you like to start? Yes, um, basically, um, I guess what I'm trying to rattle around in my brain is trying to understand um, through the eyes of the hospital, you know, why it was thought to be appropriate to do the membrane strips without being told because, I mean, um, the letter that I got from the peer review just said um, the treatment given was being appropriate. That's all that was given. I wasn't given any further information as to why or anything about, you know, what was discussed or how anything went. And I know I'm not privy to that information. And that would be why the letter mm -hmm. is very brief mm -hmm. in description. What happens with meetings with our section chiefs and their physicians mm -hmm. is, is kept to that meeting. That is theirs and, and logged appropriately. Uh, she can speak more on the physician standpoint. She works very closely with all of the OBGYNs. Um, I think it's fair to, to discuss the, the process you experienced with the OBED mm -hmm. physicians, you did not develop a, a, a positive relationship with that particular mm -hmm. physician. Be that as it may, the membrane sweeping is part of the exam. It's, it's, it's part of the exam. When you sign the consent for care, that, that goes from the beginning all the way through until discharge. So if you're going to have a procedure such as surgery, there's another consent for something like that. But when it's part of the exam per uh, section that's part that's part of it. You came you came with an expectation for care and that was what you received. Because everything that I've, you know, looked at and researched on medical journals and stuff says, you know, that a membrane strip is a procedure done to initiate labor in an attempt to do that. But even yeah. a labor check could be that. I mean, that's, I think that's where maybe there's a disconnect. I mean, these people aren't just reading medical journals online. They're doctors. They went to med school. They've been through multiple years of practice. Mm -hmm. I've been on the ACOG website myself. Um, I, no other hospitals are asking for a separate consent for this, so it's you know, just not something we're going to start at this time. But a physician usually has, you know, is common rapport with a uh, patient is to, you know, go through and say, hey, you know, we're going to do this. Is it okay? Even if they sign the blank, you know, you sign the blank and consent form. Just getting that extra verbal consent and walking your patient through what's going on because somebody like me who suffered sexual assault as a child 
I, I have some bodily autonomy issues and coming in and having people poking and prodding in my private areas is difficult enough, mm -hmm. let alone, you know, have somebody doing something in there without saying, I'm going to do this or would you like me to do this? When you came into the facility, what were the expectations for the care? But I guess that would be my, my first question. What what were your expectations? I was expecting to come in and get checked out. I felt like labor had picked up quite a bit and um, that where I was and what to do from there. Okay. And I didn't expect somebody to say, oh, maybe that'll set you into active labor. And but you told us on the phone that mm -hmm. just three days before that in the office, you had actually requested this to be done to you. Yes. By my physician, who I said it was okay to do it. I didn't know this. I didn't know Dr. Red. You know, I'd never met her. She came in. She was rude. She was pushy. And then she just came in and just did that and then said, well, you can either stay or leave. It's up to you. And at that point, I was like, I'm, I'm going to go. I, I don't even want to, you know, be here right now. And it was extremely upsetting. I am sorry that your experience didn't meet your expectations. We will always apologize for any drop in communication, which I kind of feel like we have here. <laughs> But I also feel like when you came into this facility, you were, you were seeking care. And we did provide the care that was necessary at the time. Our communication from a physician standpoint isn't anything that we approve of. We want our physicians to be kind, caring, professional. I don't know this physician, so I can't speak to her. Um, I always expect our physicians to, to communicate well with our patients. Mm -hmm. OBED is a, is, is a different atmosphere than your physician's office. Mm -hmm. They see all sorts of emergent situations where they must move and move quickly. Mm -hmm. They can't be that warm, professional person that you're used to in the, in the physician's office, and I'm not telling you mm -hmm. anything you don't realize. But when we communicate all of these concerns on a physician basis that work in the OBGYN field, we have to lean on their expertise. We have to listen to what they have to say, which is, it isn't a procedure. It doesn't need a consent. And this was a group of physicians deciding this together when it was tabled in question. From our standpoint, we have to, we go with what our policies support and the physicians approve. And that's that's our business day. Mm -hmm. I feel like you, you, you were disappointed in, in that visit. I hope in the future we can be something that meets your expectations, but that, that, is, that piece is not going to change. And I don't want your expectation mm -hmm. to be that that is something you'll see future out, because that, that's not going to change. Those physicians are very, very, 
they they truly believe what they're doing is is the best practice, or they wouldn't be doing it. This is Kristen filling in where the audio is hard to hear. Quote, It's consistent with what other people are doing, other facilities and other OBs, physicians. I don't want you to just walk away thinking we just made this up in this hospital. This is nationwide. End quote. Jay responds by mentioning that she also had an episiotomy without consent at another hospital with a previous birth. The patient advocate then asks Jay if she feels like they've responded adequately to her concerns in this meeting. Jay says... I think that's about all the information I'm going to get. And if things are, you know, if it's not going to change, it's, you know, not going to change, I guess. Well, we thank you for your feedback. And I mean that sincerely. Mm -hmm. We can't improve or grow. And I put that in the letter, but that's that's not a pat statement. Mm -hmm. I say it every day. We can't improve or grow if we don't hear the feedback from the people that are experiencing the care as a patient. So thank you. And the physicians had a topic to discuss at the, at the meeting and brought it to the attention. Mm-hmm. So we heard your voice, and we understand it probably isn't what you wanted to hear, but we did want you to know we took it seriously, and we took it to every channel we could. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Just, is, um, is there something that we can do for you other than, I know that, I mean, is your ideal outcome just we would have obtained a consent? I guess I just want to know what's your ideal result, like what would make you walk out of this meeting and be like, yes, this is what I wanted? Knowing that there was a, um, like, a policy or a general rule put into practice that, you know, there's, that you're supposed to get verbal consent in addition to the written consent for things that are going to be done just so patients are aware and because I'm just I'm, I'm thinking of your statement with the episiotomy I mean that could easily happen today if you mm-hmm. come in and you're having a vaginal delivery and your baby goes in the toilet I mean well yeah but what about if they get emergent when when things happen out of the unexpected or out of the norm or out of the ordinary which happens every day in OB and you've got a baby in distress and it's life or death but what if everything's perfectly normal? What if there is no distress? What if there is nothing? Because that's what happened with my daughter. And that's what happened when I came in for this membrane strip, too. I, I guess I just, lean on, I just lean on the fact that the physicians that we have here, so I mean, our credentialing process is pretty thorough. Mm-hmm. Um, we, our, our OB physician, our, we have an OB physician that leads the credentialing committee. So she is extremely picky and I mean there's case reviews there's multiple multiple pieces that she looks at multiple multiple cases for every physician that we credential here that we allow to practice under our room it's something that we take very seriously physician quality um, so I would just tell you that I trust the physicians that work here in this department to make whatever decision is best for the patient at that time. They know how to interpret scripts. They know how to read things that maybe we don't always see from the patient perspective. And so I do have, feel like I tr- I do fully trust those decisions that they make because I know that the physicians that we have here are quality providers. 
So I understand that, but does I, it root, um, does being a quality physician make it okay to do something like that? Like I say something like that. That is part of the exam. That I, that is yeah. considered part of an exam. So I guess I I think maybe that's where there's a disconnect. Uh -huh. I think I think I think the providers and I mean as an organization as supporting the providers they do see that as part of that vaginal exam. So they feel like, you know, their fingers are up in your vagina and you can send it to that. So yeah. I might as well while I'm up there kind of thing or well I think a lot of them it, it is viewed as part of a vaginal exam. I guess. Is that am I stating that correctly? I don't understand where that is though. I'm is is there a way that I can get that in writing or something? Because I don't I have not been able to find any evidence of that anywhere, how it's considered part of a standard and cervical check. Yeah, well, I, I guess, I mean, I, you just have to remember that they've been through years of medical school and residency. They've learned from physicians who have more experience than them in their field. Um, and I mean, neither one of us has, nobody in this room has done that. So I, I guess, I, I think that maybe is where the disconnect is. But. Now, we are almost at the end of the meeting. Remember, we are listening to this recording with Farah Diaz-Tello, a human rights and birth lawyer, and we are going to go immediately to her comments at the end of the recording. Dr. Emiliano Chavira, a high-risk OB from Los Angeles, is also listening for his comments after Farah's. So at this point, Jay reads a note sent by her husband who wanted to be at the meeting but had to work. The note says, and I'm paraphrasing, we understand this is how you do things, but this was an intervention that affected my wife's labor and she should have been asked for her consent. He then compares it to an older man going into a proctologist and having a non-consented prostate exam. The hospital representatives respond. And I guess I don't know because I'm not a, I don't do geriatrics. I, I couldn't speak to that. I only could go we could go we could go analogy to analogy. Mm -hmm. We could mm -hmm. also take that and flip it right back over. So I don't I don't want to rehash the hash. I want you to I want you to feel like we listened. That's what I want. I think communication from the physician to the patient can be broadened at any given time both from your side to that physician and from that physician to you. I think this was an exclusive situation that may or may not happen again between a physician that was in our OBED. If there are opportunities to review this consistently, we could, you know, if, if this happens again, has this ever happened before? No. We, we tabled it with the physicians, we looked at it, we reviewed it, we, we agreed that the care received was appropriate. We'll be on the lookout in the future for opportunities specific to this. So I hope that you feel better about that. Plus, I think the communication piece has got to improve with many physicians. But always remember when you're coming through any ED, it, it's going to be abrupt, 
It's going to be quick. It's going to be because they are used to emergent situations. They, they behave differently. They speak differently. That's the end of the recording, and the meeting ended right after that. Hi, Farah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> you need a minute to collect your thoughts? <laughs> uh, I mean, yes and no, because it was hard to hold back from responding the entire time. And I really yeah. admired the way that she handled that. I, that was so infuriating, like condescending inconsistent and just wrong in so many ways. Oh my goodness. I, I kind of felt the same way. And I've listened to this multiple times now and I'm still picking up things every single time. It seems like every time she asked sort of a pointed question, they just went back to, well, doctors have a lot of training. The doctors are in charge of not only you, but of us too. And it is purely their judgment and their decision um, about how they practice regardless of right. your feelings or your rights. <laughs> right. Well, and they really seem to be using a variety of different deflection tactics um, that, you know, at times were even inconsistent. So there was the doctors have all the training, but then it was like the doctors see so much and they're used to dealing with emergencies that, you know, we excuse a certain amount of, um, you know, disrespectful practice. Um, but then, you know, like this, the sort of multiple layers, right? Like this, well, this isn't even a procedure. Um, I feel like it reminds me in, in law school, there, they, we would be taught about like arguing in the alternative, you know, somebody says they got bitten by a dog and you argue, uh, the dog didn't bite you. And then if that doesn't work, it wasn't my dog. And then if that doesn't work, well, you kicked it. So you deserved it anyway, you know, <laughs> like kind of the, yes. I, the yeah. So gosh, like where, where can I even start with this? I mean, will you just sort of take the bull by the horns and answer the question? Is it true that that doctor didn't need to get consent before doing that membrane sweep? There is the clear cut answer that is that people have a fundamental right to decide what happens to their bodies. You know, that, that any unwanted medical touching is considered a battery. And then there is the way that hospitals operate, which is to treat blanket consent forms that are signed, sometimes even in advance of a person coming in, as being, you know, sort of the last word on whether a person consents to any procedure. And, you know, un unfortunately, I think that when it comes to people trying to litigate these cases, juries who may not have you know, may not have the same information or insights into what people actually experience in birth, will treat the consent form as the final word, really, like, legally as a, as a concept, like, people have the right to make those decisions about every, um, you know, about every procedure. And so, you know, even procedures that are conducted, um, you know, under consent that's given, but that are beyond the scope of consent can be considered a battery. So, you know, unless it is a truly emergency situation, your doctor can't take advantage of the fact that, say, you are under anesthesia while they're doing surgery and they see something else wrong and decide we're just going to go ahead and, you know, fix that other thing, right? Like they, they, they have to have consent for those things. So the, as long as we're up here, um, that doesn't really apply. That's not a legal defense to the person's fundamental right to, to make those decisions. Yeah. And I, I, I find it appalling that they're trying to hide behind the fact that it's not 
considered a procedure. Um, and I don't know where they would find authority for the idea that a membrane sweep is not considered a, a procedure. I mean, I, I think it's, you know, it's really like trying to split hairs, um, you know, when they're saying that like even just doing a vaginal check at all could spur labor. So the fact that a membrane sweep is generally intended to spur labor is of no significance. Like that doesn't make it a procedure. Um, when really like it's not that difficult to be in an ongoing consent conversation with a patient, especially, you know, here I don't get any indication that she was actually in an emergency situation. She was merely being examined by an obstetrician in the emergency department. Um, so as she said, how difficult is it to say, you know, I want to do a membrane sweep. Can we go ahead and do that? This is what it's going to feel like. You know, that I think that that should be fairly common practice, even in an emergency. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know if this became more clear to me now that I've listened to it a bunch of times. They're also saying that it's their new procedure now. All women will go through that department in labor. All women, unless they're having a scheduled C-section. So on the one hand, they're saying these are the emergency doctors. They're very used to extreme situations. They don't have time to be, I think she called it warm and professional. Yeah. They don't have time for that. And you shouldn't expect that as patients. And then on the other hand, they're saying we're sending all of our pregnant patients through those doctors. So yeah, so we're yeah. saying, you know, if you were in labor, you were necessarily in an emergency. So we will necessarily dispense with any protocols related to obtaining consent, which is which is really troubling. They're saying you check your right the door. And that's absolutely not the case. Right. That that is exactly what they're saying. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, and I mean that sort of it raised the question for me also, because they're talking about OBGYNs and the emergency department is the expectation that everybody is going to be admitted through the emergency department. Because if that's the case, that raises some more troubling questions for people's ability to, you know, consent or not consent to other medical procedures, given the yeah. abuses that we've seen that are justified by saying, you know, this is an emergency. I mean, apparently suffered an unconsented episiotomy in a prior delivery. Um, and, you know, it's, it, they seem to indicate that this hospital would be willing to do the same thing. Uh, and that is, you know, again, that's a, that's a fairly clear-cut battery. If somebody is not notified that a procedure is going to happen, that's a failure of informed consent, you know, that essentially, like, it creates a whole host of legal issues for them yeah. to treat every labor as an emergency. Yeah. And then the woman said, um, you know, that it had to do with emergencies um, when Jesse brought that up about the episiotomy. And she was like, yeah, that could happen here. If, if there's an emergency, if a baby goes in the toilet, which I, I'm assuming she means if things go wrong, I don't think we're literally talking about babies in toilets. Um, mm -hmm. And she's saying, you know, you've got a baby in distress and it's life or death. And then interrupts to say, but what if, what if there is no distress? What if, if everything is perfectly normal? Which I think was really smart of her because, again, we're talking about all pregnant women going through this department. And they keep conflating this idea of, like, it's life or death. We don't have time. We aren't obligated to ask you for your consent. And yet every single pregnancy, they're, they're saying, is going to be treated this way. Yeah. And even though, you know, I mean, I want to say like most hospitals are going to disagree vehemently with the idea that for instance a person would need to sign a separate consent form for every single thing you know for for getting the iv for you know having that epidural for for all of these things like i can understand for the sake of obedience why they have the forms um, that include all or most of the procedures that a person might go through but that form doesn't negate 
the person's fundamental right to make decisions along the way. So because you, you know, it's not once you sign up to go to the hospital, you have now explicitly consented to everything. Everything continues to be a discussion and consent can be revoked. If somebody says, stop touching me, they're legally obligated to stop touching that person. Um, And, you know, not even an emergency situation invalidates that right. So even if, quote, the baby starts to go in the toilet, the doctor should still let the patient know, I think we should do an episiotomy and get that baby out now. And the person has the opportunity to say, no, I don't want you to do that. And that has to be respected. Um, And they can't circumvent that by just doing it and then putting the onus on the woman who is now a new mother, now has just delivered to come back and try to sue them later to be vindicated in her rights. This is something that they need to be doing up front. It's a quality of care issue. Um, And it's very disappointing to see that this hospital uh, is it seems to be refusing to address it. You know, they're telling her like we're, we don't want to set up the expectation that anything is going to be any different. But we want you to feel like we heard you. You yeah. know, and I think that the the we want you to feel like uh, is really the operative piece that I was getting from them. Like we're going through this conversation, um, but not really empathizing with the fact that you unconsented episiotomy, that you've experienced sexual assault, and that you you found this triggering. Um, but yet we're not, you know, we're not going to acknowledge any wrongdoing whatsoever. Yeah. Um, to go back to that, your point about consent forms, um, you know, they, they seem to be very hung up on consent forms as well. And I'm sure you've seen as I've seen for years now, there's so much confusion about the right of informed consent and a form for informed consent. They're two totally different things. Informed consent can happen without a consent form happening. Consent forms should not happen without informed consent happening. Those forms exist to document informed consent. It is the informed consent that's actually the most important piece there, not the piece of paper. And they definitely don't seem to have that perspective, even though that's not... um, you know, ACOG is very clear and very explicit about the difference between informed consent and a consent form. And you would think that these obstetricians would be aware of that, but it doesn't sound like they are or these hospital representatives understand that at all. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. You're absolutely right. But informed consent is a conversation. Um, it's not a signature on a form. Uh, and you know, the the thing is that the conversation also includes what is happening at the time in the delivery room. So the idea that somebody documented their understanding of the risks and benefits of a procedure and, and has that in writing doesn't override the fact that they can later revoke their consent. Uh, you know, if they, if they change their mind and they don't have to cite a reason for changing their mind, you know, one of the things that, that was notable in this call or in the, in the interview was that one of the speakers said, well, you called us three days ago and you said that you wanted this done. But just because she called and asked for it three days ago doesn't mean that when she actually shows up, you know, three days later, that she has given consent. Yeah, exactly. You know, that, that she, she hasn't given consent at that point. Like nobody has asked her at that point. And I think that, you know, one of the things to, to think about is, you know, to think about the analogy to our, um, to our evolving understanding of consent 
insects. You know, we have gone from a perspective where there are some people who are just simply not entitled to not consent. You know, um, marital rape wasn't considered a crime in many states until like the 1980s. Um, you know, the idea of date rape is something that is that we're still grappling with, like the idea that people have a right to consent and not consent and that, that that's something that can even happen during the process. I think that we're in the obstetric context, we're like many decades behind in that conversation. Um, yeah. where, you know, we're essentially saying if you you decided to get seek care here, you should have known what to expect. You were asking for it. Right. Well, it's the difference between no means no and yes means yes. Exactly. Consent consent is something that should be willingly and freely given, not just an absence of an explicit no. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that this also shares shades of victim blaming. You know, you... You came in, you asked us for care, you didn't leave when the, when the OBGYN rudely told you, if you don't like it, you can go, you didn't go. Um, and I, I think it's, it's in a way like searching for an explanation why this was fault, like why the thing that, that she felt very violated by was something that was her fault. Um, and that's, that really exposes our just underlying thinking of, of what we think about women's ability to give consent and to make decisions for themselves. You know, they repeated it over and over again. The doctors, the doctors, they know better. Um, they received all this training that we didn't receive. And the interesting thing about that, like the, the idea that doctors receive training from other doctors who have more experience with them. Well, you know, this is exactly how rape culture is perpetuated. The people learn it. They see it modeled in other places. Um, and this is something that you see also in the, um, in the literature about disrespectful care at birth, that healthcare providers learn it when they see it modeled by senior people. And the, the hospital here has the opportunity to intervene and break the cycle um, and establish that this is not an acceptable way to practice. Even if this particular doctor is never going to face any type of potential liability, the hospital has the opportunity to prevent future liability by other patients who are not going to be so nice and come back with a, you know, with a lawsuit instead and cut this off and say that this is not going to be, yeah. you know, this is not going to be tolerated in our hospital, but they're passing on that opportunity. I wouldn't be surprised right. if there are many, many more women who have experienced this and just, you know, didn't have the wherewithal or the resources or the support or the backbone to come back and meet with their hospital. And especially for right. um, a sexual a rape survivor <laughs> to come back and do that. Right. And that's, um, that's a really big deal. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, the, that's the thing. I mean, the, the argument is entirely inconsistent. Like they have decided that this was appropriate care and yet this has never happened before. I think that you're exactly right. They've just never had a person complain to them about it before. And so that's part of why I really, I applaud her courage um, and especially like working through what must have been multiple layers of trauma based on her past experiences um, to in such a collected way go speak her truth uh, you know to even submit the letter and like have the support of her husband and all that is is enormous and um, I hope that hearing this empowers more people who feel that to speak up about it um, so that other hospitals can't use the excuse that this has never happened before that nobody's ever complained about this before you know, I, I would love to see more conversations that actually involve interfacing between the patients and the physicians, because I wonder 
if the physicians would have come to the same conclusion if they had actually heard from you know directly yeah. like would would yeah. they be able to tell her to their face that what happened to her was appropriate yeah i agree and my goodness you know if if you don't have personal experience with sexual trauma it might never occur to you that something that you were trained to do very routinely could be really traumatizing for for someone who comes from a different background I think that's exactly right. I mean, the the most important thing to take from all of this is that she has really given them a gift um, in her feedback, in her honest feelings about what happened to her and how that made her feel at the time. Um, and it is really shameful to see the hospital turning that gift away instead of using it to improve their care. Because based on what they've said, it seems to me that they were telling her sorry, not sorry, and we're not going to change anything when they've been given a golden opportunity to do. Yeah, no, that's kind of what I got out of it too. Well, thank you for your work and thank you so much for helping get her story out. I I think it's absolutely appalling and I hope that more people listen to it. I hope that that doctors and hospital administrators listen to it. I think it's important. Thank you. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's no, there's no point in talking about all this stuff if it's not if it's not going back to the people who can actually change these behaviors, you know? Absolutely. Well, Farah, thank you again. You're the best. (laughs) It is my pleasure. Always my pleasure. Okay, now let's go to Dr. Emiliano Chavira, a maternal fetal medicine specialist in Los Angeles who has a special interest in maternity care ethics. So let's find out from this high-risk OB what his thoughts are on what Jay was told. Hi, Dr. Chavira. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for this invitation. I really appreciate it. Um, maybe it would be helpful if we could describe a little bit what a cervical exam is and what membrane sweeping is um, to, to try Great. to appreciate better uh, the difference. So a cervical exam, this is really an information gathering procedure. Uh, you're not really doing anything to the patient or causing anything to happen. Uh, you're just trying to get an assessment of, of what is happening with the cervix and the position of the baby. Now, membrane sweeping, um, it, you know, in, in the way I've always understood it and have always practiced is a separate and distinct thing and is not part, is not automatically a part of the cervical exam. So membrane sweeping is a procedure where if the cervix is dilated enough to, to be able to insert one or two fingers, you get one or two fingers up into the cervix and you kind of sweep around in a circular motion. And if you kind of imagine that the bag of waters is, is, is kind of glued to the cervix with this biological glue, so to speak, you're kind of breaking up um, you know, that connection between the membranes and the, and the cervix. <clears throat> and probably you're also stimulating the cervix to release some of the natural hormones that are involved in triggering the labor process. So when, you're, when you do a membrane sweeping procedure, the doing it is usually to try to uh, accelerate labor or to initiate labor. There are instances when the last thing on earth you would want to do would be to stimulate labor. Uh, for example, let's say we're, we're doing a cervical exam on a preterm mom. You don't want to be stimulating labor. So, so how can a procedure that's designed to stimulate labor be an inherent part of the cervical exam? It just doesn't make sense. 
Um, so, yeah. so, so I, I think they just have to be thought of as two separate and distinct uh, procedures. Now, if if uh, the if the provider and the patient have a discussion and they decide that they that they would like to do the me- the membrane sweeping, if it's feasible then you will do them at the same time. You'll, you'll do the cervical exam. You'll see what's going on with the cervix. You'll see where the baby is. And then you'll finish off um, with a couple of more seconds of doing the membrane sweeping. So they will happen at the phys- physically at the same time, but that does not mean that the membrane sweeping is inherently a part of a, of a cervical exam because it just isn't. I think one of the points that the hospital representatives made was that um, there is no separate consent form for that procedure. What does that mean to you? Uh, you know, to use that language uh, expresses to me a very common confusion that happens in the hospital that people uh, and providers of care, they think of consent as a form and a signature on the form, but that is not what consent is. Consent is a conversation that happens between you know a care provider and a patient and you talk about uh, a proposed uh, therapeutic intervention or maybe there are multiple options that you could choose from and you talk about what the pros and cons are of of the different approaches and what the risks are and what the benefits are and after you've taught the the patient all the uh issues that are at play then the patient tells you what they're comfortable with, with what their preferences are. It's an educational process. The, the form, all that is, is a documentation of the fact that this process um, happened. Um, would you do a membrane sweep without that conversation? Never. I would never do that. Okay. Well, that's pretty unequivocal. <laughs> yeah. What other thoughts did you have about the conversation that Jay had with the hospital representatives? Yeah, you know, I I had a lot of thoughts about it. Um, So one is if we try to take a generous orientation to the the point of view of of this group of physicians that apparently discussed this and and deemed that this was all uh, okay in standard of care. Uh, and and the hospital administration uh, uh, representatives who were you know interacting with the patient. If we give them the benefit of the doubt, I, you know we could say we can acknowledge the fact that in the hospital, when you are administering medical care, there are a million billion decisions that get made and processes that happen. And you you cannot possibly discuss every single teeny tiny detail with the patient. It's just it's just impractical. It's not feasible, and it also unloads too much to grapple with. So there's some stuff that just falls into the category of standard operating procedures, and we acknowledge that that's inevitable. That, that there's a like, lot of stuff. Can you give an example just, of what you mean? Well, um, you know, like let's say if you get admitted to the hospital and there's standard uh, laboratory exams that are done, like certain blood work, like they're going to check your blood count and your platelets and your blood type. And some hospitals may uh, do a um, 
some coagulation studies to look at how well your blood is clotting. They may look at general chemistries. Um, and, um, you know, you could get into an hour long conversation about the pros and cons of doing all of this, what the, uh, you know, there, there are some risks because there could be false results and, uh, you know, you, you could get into conversation about all these things. Do you want to be having a conversation with your physician about what kind of IV fluid are you going to get? So now you need to learn about normal saline and lactated ringers and, and half normal and D5. And yeah. it's just too much. It's yeah. too much. So some stuff uh, just needs to be um, decided for you as part of the general package of care. But there are other things that clearly are going to fall into the category of this needs to be discussed with the patient and the patient needs to be involved and they need to be given the option to make, you know, these decisions. I think uh, everybody would acknowledge, let's say you're going to do cesarean delivery that falls into that category. So for me, uh, doing a membrane sweeping because you, the intent of it is that you are trying to, initiate or stimulate labor, that cannot fall into the category of standard operating procedures that is done without involving the wishes of, of, of the patient. And if there was a point in time where patients at large felt that that was the case and that was you know their duty to make those decisions as part of regular OB care, I, I think that time um, has has passed, and we are we are now in an era where uh, the the hospital and the physicians do not own the patients and make these decisions about their lives, but you're you're there actually to um, advise and uh, and and help people. Uh, live the kind of life that they want to live and, and make the decisions that, that they want to live. Some women may be very uncomfortable with pregnancy and want to do every possible thing to get the labor going and may be very eager to have a memory sweeping procedure. Other women, it may be very, very important to them that uh, the labor starts on, on its own and they don't want any interventions done uh, to artificially start uh, the, the process and that needs to be respected. And then there may be women who are perfectly willing to have their membrane swept, but they don't want it, they just don't want it done without their permission. They want to be involved in decision making. And more than anything else, having control over what happens to their body while they're under care is of paramount importance. And so all of these things, I, I think, um, you know, need to be. Uh, increasingly recognized by providers of care, and you know now we're talking specifically about providers of maternity care. That you know when you are doing things to to women's bodies, it just has to happen with consent. So I I I think the the concept of a membrane sweeping procedure, if there's a group of physicians that think that that, that the OB guy gets to do that whenever they deem it's appropriate without discussing with the patient. I think that era of that type of care, just it must come to an end. And, you know, this type of procedure has to be moved into the category of this has to be discussed with a patient prior, uh, prior to doing it. So, you know, that was one thought uh, that I had about that conversation. Uh, another thought 
that I had was, you know, it, it, it struck me that uh, you had this group of physicians that, that, that sat around and discussed this concern that this patient had, and they all decided amongst themselves that, uh, that they thought it was okay and they thought it was appropriate. And they, I, I did not hear any communication of an intent to, to change anything. Uh, it, it seemed to me that was communicated. No, I think the they specifically was, stated they were they would not be changing yeah, anything. Yeah, that, that 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 this is the way things are done, and it, you know the, it's unfortunate the patient didn't like it, but you know unfortunately that's just the way it's done. And I, you know I I um, I find it very difficult to comprehend how a group of providers of women's health care would not hear the message coming from a patient that, that this experience was difficult for her because of her history of sexual trauma and sexual abuse. It's hard for me to understand how providers of women's health care would not hear that message. And, in, and even, if, even if it's written in a textbook that the cervical exam automatically entails a membrane sweep, even if that was like authorized by the specialty as, at large, which it's not. But even if that was the case, I don't understand how, you know, providers of, of care would not hear this message and think to themselves, we don't want to be engaging in practices that are, uh, that are uh, re- opening these wounds or re-injuring emotionally women who have been, you know, injured in the past. And why would they not be motivated to just rethink this whole process? I mean, I, uh, you know, to me, uh, it, it requires a change that is so minor. All you do is you take 10 seconds and say, hey, you know, I could do this membrane sweeping procedure. It may have the effect of bringing your labor on a little bit sooner. Um, and then the lady says whether she wants it or not. You just stop for 10 seconds and you ask the woman how she feels about it. I, it's just beyond my comprehension that, that a woman expresses that this was very troubling to her because of her history of sexual abuse and the providers of care would not hear that message and would not be motivated to do this differently in the future. It, it's just hard for me to, to grasp uh, you know, that reality. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you saying that. Um, it was hard for me to hear when she mentioned it in the meeting and they did not respond to her saying that. I mean, they just sort yeah. of acted like she didn't say um, that she had been abused in the past. And that was really difficult as a woman <laughs> to hear that. And, and I don't know if you yeah. picked up, but um, they, they mentioned, I think towards the end that this is, this is now the, uh, the procedure at that hospital that all women will be coming through that department. All pregnant women short of having a scheduled C-section would be going through that department with those doctors. So yeah. they kind of just got done explaining how those doctors aren't going to be warm and professional. And then they say, and also we're sending everyone to those doctors to be admitted. Yeah. Yeah. There, there was just, um, you know, the orientation was, 
100% justification of status quo. And there was, there was little to no expression of a, of a motivation to do things differently and, and to aspire to a higher plane of practice where, uh, in, in addition to getting done with the, with the mechanical busy work that necessarily has to get done, but over and above and beyond that, you take emotional and spiritual care of the people that, you know, pass through your doors. So I guess for parting thoughts, I'd be interested to know if you were one of the doctors in this situation, what would you say? Um, That's very easy to answer because um, I have, um, I have been in that situation and um, I, I have a very deep understanding of the point of view of the obstetricians uh, because that's what I am. You know, I, I work in the hospital and, you know, we, we have policies and procedures and I have, you know, the manner in which I was trained. And let's say, let's just forget about the membrane sweeping and let's just talk about the cervical exam itself. And for many women, the experience of the cervical exam itself is just as this particular patient um, described it. They, they find it painful, um, maybe a discussion of what it was going to actually entail was very lacking. And uh, then they may be reminded of uh, sexual assault that they lived through. And then the other thing that's happening is they're, they're asking the uh, provider to stop, but the provider kind of doggedly persists until the exam is complete and they get the information that they need. Now, I understand that because that's the way I was trained. That when you take care of women in, in labor, you need to know what the status of the baby is and you need to know what the status of uh, the cervix is. And um, so when you set out to acquire this information, you acquire it and you don't stop until you've acquired this information. And if the, you know, the, the patient is expressing that this is uncomfortable or painful your your training is well these things are sometimes uncomfortable or painful and unfortunately that's just the nature of the beast so you finish the exam until you get the info that you need and i have done that myself um hundreds or maybe thousands of times and i don't remember when this happened but um it, this was it wasn't even a case that i was involved in but i think i was reading an article where a woman, you know, described this experience and it reminded her of having been raped. And the, the notion was completely and totally foreign to me. And I had never considered this possibility. And I had never considered the possibility that something that I'm doing to a woman that I conceptualize as part of caring for her and caring for her baby she's experiencing on the other side of that as an assault. Um, So for, for me, uh, this was not at all difficult uh, because I wasn't, I wasn't defensive about it. And I, I I didn't, uh, you know, take a posture where I had to, you know, justify at all costs, this type of practice. For me, it just kind of opened my eyes to a reality, which I had, previously underappreciated 
that the woman on the other side of this experience may be living this process in a way that is completely and totally and dramatically different than the way that I am living it. And mm-hmm. so, uh, so all that happened with me is it broadened my understanding of, of the cervical exam and what it means and what it might mean to, to certain women. And it was very easy to do. I, um, you know, I, so now when I do a cervical exam, um, I mean, I always used to ask permission before, so I still ask permission and I say, you know, this, this can be painful. If at, if at, if at a certain point it gets to be a little too much, you just tell me to stop and we're going to stop. And, and basically what I do is I just give the woman control. That's, that's, that's all I do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't ever have any conflicts, you know, over this. And it's very rare that I'm in a situation where I can't, uh, you know, complete a cervical exam. It hasn't really changed anything from my point of view clinically in a meaningful way. But I'm imagining that on the other side, um, that this kind of approach is very helpful for women, particularly women that, uh, you know, maybe have a, a history of, uh, you know, sexual abuse or sexual trauma. And most of the time, I don't even know that history. You know, it's, it's, right. it's not, right. you know, uh, uh, out in the open. So I, I just assume that giving the woman control is going to be helpful to, to uh, you know, to a lot of the women that, that I interact with. So, you know, this was not difficult in any way for me to, to adapt to. The, the only thing that was required was an orientation where I wasn't defensive and I didn't try, you know, to, to bend over backwards justifying why I have to do the things the way I've always done. But I just, you know, incorporated a broader understanding of, of what the woman on the other side may be experiencing and try to be sensitive to that. It's, it's really not yeah. that difficult to do. Right. Well, thank you so much. Oh, anytime. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Now let's go back to Jay to close out the show. Jay, what were your feelings as you left that meeting? I'm not great under confrontation. I, I tend to get a little bit um, teary-eyed as it is. So it was, it was really difficult to um, keep my composure throughout the conversation as well as I think that I did. I was, I was like, at a couple points, I was about ready to start crying. And I was like, I got to hold it together because they're just going to, they're going to think even less of me if I do that. When you walked out of the meeting, did you feel like you had accomplished anything? Um, the only thing I felt like I accomplished was successfully getting that recording because with all the negative and terrible feelings that were swirling around, that was my one piece of solace was that I had it recorded and other people would be able to hear it. Uh, well, thank you so much for, for sharing this and I'm really sorry that you had to go through this. Any, any parting thoughts? Try to prepare a little bit more. Uh, I felt like I had a, absolutely everything handled. If you go in unprepared and don't expect something like this, you know, as a potential to happen, and then you're blindsided by it like I was, um, then it definitely has a chance of creating a neg- negative experience for you. Well, I think, 
I think if every woman could depend upon every hospital and every doctor being familiar with and respecting her basic civil rights, we wouldn't have to prepare so much. Amen. On that note, we're out of time. And thank you so, so, so much for being here. I really, really appreciate it. And I know that your story is relevant to probably hundreds of thousands of people. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. The companion article to this show is at www.birthmonopoly.com slash implied consent. A copy of that article is going to the hospital where Jay gave birth, and I'll let you guys know if I get a response. Again, it's www.birthmonopoly.com slash implied consent. This has been Birth Aloud with Kristen Piscucci. If you'd like to reach me with questions or show ideas or anything else, you can email me at birthaloudradio at gmail.com. Thanks for being here with us. We'll be back every other Sunday at 1 p.m. on WLXU. We'll see you next time.